Hey everybody, and welcome to the Five Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. And also by Liquidware, the innovator in adaptive workspace management solutions. And of course, also brought to you by PolicyPack Software, where you use group policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these great sponsors to thank. And now for some news. TechCrunch.com reported this week that Zoom have agreed a deal to buy a cloud call center service provider called Five9. That's F-I-V-E and the number nine. So... The word five and the number nine. The deal is said to be for about $14.7 billion in an all stock transaction. So Zoom are obviously riding that high from the huge boost in sales during the pandemic. It's said that Five9 is a pioneer of cloud-based contact center software and is highly scalable and secure cloud contact center that delivers a comprehensive suite of easy to use applications that allows management and optimization of customer interactions across many different channels. Five9 have over 2000 customers worldwide, including Citrix and Under Armour, and processes over 7 billion minutes of calls annually. TechCrunch report that the market for contact centers is a $24 billion market. Rowan Trollope, the chief executive of Five9, said about the acquisition, quote, Businesses spend significant resources annually on their contact centers, but still struggle to deliver a seamless experience for their customers. It has always been Five9's mission to make it easy for businesses to fix that problem and engage with their customers in a more meaningful and efficient way. Joining forces with Zoom will provide Five9's business customers access to best-of-breed solutions, particularly Zoom Phone, that will enable them to realize more value and deliver real results for their business. This, combined with Zoom's ease-of-use philosophy and broad communication portfolio, will truly enable customers to engage via their preferred channel of choice." End quote. So very interesting. Obviously, Zoom is a pretty massive company now. So it seems like a logical next step for them to start to acquire and to expand their offering. So congratulations to Five9 and Zoom. Tom'sHardware.com reported this week that Microsoft have developed their own Linux distro called CBL-Mariner, and they released it under the open source MIT license. It's a pretty historic development and one that would have been unimaginable 10 years ago, but this is actually in-fitting with the direction Microsoft has been going under Satya Nadella. It is described as an internal Linux distribution for Microsoft's cloud infrastructure and edge products and services that was designed to provide a consistent platform for these devices and services and enhance Microsoft's ability to stay current on Linux updates moving forward. It has actually existed since November 2020, but just recently, Microsoft engineer Juan Ray 
wrote up kind of a getting started or how-to guide about the distro. And you can download this distro and the documentation from GitHub right now. And I'll share a link to that with this episode, which is episode 186. And you'll find that on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links. Bleepingcomputer.com reported on vulnerability CVE-2021-3438, which is a buffer overflow in the ssport.sys driver for specific printer models that could lead to a local escalation of user privileges. This is a 16-year-old security vulnerability found in HP, Xerox, and Samsung printer drivers that allows attackers to gain admin rights and on systems using the vulnerable driver software. It affects hundreds of millions of devices worldwide. The buggy driver automatically gets installed with the printer software and will be loaded by Windows after each system reboot. HP, Xerox, and Samsung enterprise and home customers are urged to apply the patches provided by the vendors as soon as possible. ZDNet reported on a really interesting study by Atlas VPN, or at least they paid for the study, which claims that Android apps on your phone each have 39 security vulnerabilities on average. The researchers who analyzed the security of open source software components of 3,335 free and pay mobile applications in the Google Play Store state that the category of top free games was the worst offender, where 96% were found to contain vulnerable components. Following closely behind were top grossing games and top paid games. So that's very important. It's not just those free apps that are a concern. Some paid games and some paid apps are also a concern. All in all, it's said that 3,137 unique vulnerabilities were found in just Q1 of 2021 that appeared more than 82,000 times across Android apps. The problems are said to be across the board and affects apps such as banking and payment apps too. So hugely concerning. And of course, this makes Android look all the worse as an enterprise-grade operating system. And for some balance, the Record Media reported an updated story on a known iPhone bug that could crash your Wi-Fi service. Initially, it was just reported as a bug that, well, it's a nuisance because it can dump out your Wi-Fi. But it turns out that it's much worse than that. And security firm SecOps showed on Friday how the bug could actually be used for remote code execution attacks. The report states that since Wi-Fi network names are written on disk in certain files, every time the iPhone tried to connect to a Wi-Fi network, iOS would read those files and crash and reboot in a loop. Well, by adding simply a percent at to a network name, they said that a malicious threat actor could abuse the crash pattern loop in the Wi-Fi service to execute their own custom code in what could be described as a use-after-free vulnerability. So the article claims that iOS automatically connects users to the closest Wi-Fi network, which I'm not sure if that's true or not. I don't own an iPhone. But they say that the bug could be exploited in zero-click scenarios just by creating a malicious Wi-Fi network name and then waiting for nearby users to connect to it when close enough. I don't think that's true, though. Is it? I mean, you have to 
connect to a new network for the first time on the phone, surely, right? Well, it's too late now. I wish I'd tried it with my wife's iPhone. But I guess maybe the point could still be that you could connect to your closest remembered wireless network, which could potentially have the name changed to include the percent at, and they could hack you that way. Regardless, if you have an iPhone, ensure you are on the latest version of iOS. Interestingengineer.com has reported that engineers in Japan achieved a download speed of 319 terabits per second on a line of fibers more than 1,864 miles long, which is about 3,000 kilometers. The research team of engineers used four cores, which are glass tubes housed within the fibers that transmit the data, instead of the conventional standard core. The signals are then broken down into several wavelengths sent at the same time, employing a technique that is known as wavelength division multiplexing. To carry more data, the researchers used a rarely employed third band, extending the distance via several optical amplification technologies. And best of all, it has been suggested that this method is compatible with modern day cable infrastructure. So no new infrastructure is needed in order to achieve this type of download speed, which is pretty exciting. That could be very cool. Group Room have standardized room configurations on their infinite canvas spaces. Their update means that those with the free plan now get a virtual workspace included rather than the original matrix space, which is kind of like that generic space. They've also made improvements to their WebRTC peer-to-peer -peer spatial video technologies, and they are now able to double their offering to 10 users in the free space and 60 minutes per session. So that's up from five users for 30 minutes. And it says that if you're an existing free group room customer, all you have to do is delete your existing matrix style room and create a new room to take advantage of the new virtual workspaces. Group rooms paying customers have the ability to upload new virtual workspaces as well as digital twin versions of their own physical office spaces to create a true hybrid workspace environment for both their local and remote employees. It said that the pro users also have access to room announcements, the ability to embed web pages, YouTube videos, Google Docs, whiteboards, and private rooms, and of course, more employees and guests per space with longer meeting times. If you haven't checked out Group Room yet, definitely check that out. And I'm running a user group on Friday. I'm not using Group Room right now, but I'm hoping that for future events, I might try to finagle it and uh, get access to show people because I think it's really, really uh, different and unique and a really great experience. On last week's episode of the podcast, I included a Citrix vulnerability affecting VDAs with the Citrix Profile Management or the WMI plugin installed. This week I saw that Martin Dews shared a Citrix article, CTX319135, which contains multiple vulnerabilities that affect delivery controllers, Citrix gateways, and Citrix SD-WAN WANOP additions. The vulnerabilities are listed as CVE-2021-22919, which is described as limited disk space consumption on the appliance 
and affects Citrix ADC, Citrix Gateway, and the Citrix SD-WAN WANOP Edition. It said a precondition for that vulnerability is unauthenticated attacker must be able to reach the management GUI, which maybe don't be overconfident that they can't and <laughs> just take the correct preventative measures. Also, CVE-2021-22920, which is described as SAML authentication hijacked through a phishing attack to steal a valid user session. And that affects Citrix ADC and the Citrix Gateway. And a precondition is Citrix ADC or Gateway must be configured as a SAML SP. And finally, also CVE-2021-22927, which is described as session fixation by an authorized user on SAML SP. And that affects Citrix ADC and Citrix Gateway and has the same precondition of Citrix ADC or Citrix Gateway must be configured as a SAML SP. The good news is that updates have already been made available for all of these affected products and these vulnerabilities. And now some quick hit stories to wrap up the news for this week. First, the VDI Design Guide Part 2 by the awesome Johan van Amersfoort is now available and can be ordered on Amazon. It's currently just available in paperback, but there are plans to release an ebook as well. He says that, that that may take some time. But be sure to check it out and get your own copy. This week I saw that Christian Brinkhoff shared an interactive demo of Windows 365, which is the new service that was announced from Microsoft last week. And this walks you through the steps required to get a desktop deployed to your users from beginning to end. And if you don't know what Windows 365 is, I suggest you check out episode 185 of this podcast to hear about it. And on that topic, a correction on what I mentioned last week about Windows 365 and the Azure Active Directory domain join. I said that it was in preview and would be available sometime in the future. Scott Manchester corrected me and said that it's going to be available for the Windows 365 business immediately at launch, which is August 2nd, I believe. The evergreen script from Manuel Winkel has been updated with a new version, version 1.52, and he's added Cisco WebEx, the control up agent and console, Microsoft SQL server management, Microsoft Power BI, Sumatara PDF, Microsoft Remote Desktop, and the awesome RD Analyzer product. This version also adds in the Nevergreen module, which I featured on multiple episodes of the podcast too. Really awesome to see this kind of community collaboration across these awesome Evergreen products. So great job, guys. That's Manuel, Aaron, and Dan, primarily. And finally, as I alluded to a little bit earlier, and I mentioned on a couple of other episodes of the podcast... I'll be hosting a cloud paging user group. It's the very first meeting of this cloud paging user group. It'll be at 1.30 p.m. BST, which I believe will be 2.30 p.m. Central European time or 8.30 a.m. Eastern time in the States. The event is not sponsored, so there won't be any swag or anything like that, but I think you gain a lot from a user group that's like completely independent 
because the messaging and content hasn't been dictated by a vendor. So if it sounds like something you'd like to join, maybe you want to learn about cloud paging, which to me is the best application packaging and delivery technology out there. It has the highest rate of compatibility and first time success by far. And I am excited to share some information about the product and my own experience with others. So come along. And now a hot job. HTG in the UK are looking for a technical support engineer. They say as a cloud-based business, they are working remotely for the foreseeable future. However, their preference is that you should live within commuting distance of their South Tyneside office. The successful candidate should have solid knowledge of enterprise level infrastructure technology, good understanding of IT operations and change processes, excellent written and verbal communication skills, excellent organizational skills, strong analytical and problem-solving skills with attention to detail, ability to translate technical subject matter into simple terms, and flexibility with the ability to manage multiple work streams. The responsibilities and duties include working in a team of specialist engineers and consultants, delivering managed infrastructure services, consulting projects, and tiered support services for clients. You'll be part of a team providing operational and delivery for the on-premises and hosted technologies and services provided by HDG. You'll act as an escalation point for client issues when required. You'll triage and schedule support escalations and project work and more. Essential for the role is a minimum of three years IT professional experience in a role that displays aptitude and ability in relevant technology a technical background with prior experience or exposure to technologies such as Microsoft Azure Cloud Services, Exchange, Office 365, Microsoft 365, Windows Server, desktop deployment and maintenance, hardware management, and monitoring and management. You should have evidence of technical qualifications or certifications showing formal training and development, experience in relationship management with customers, suppliers, and staff at all levels, an ability to develop documented long-term delivery strategy aligned to a technical roadmap for services, and service management and ITIL experience. The salary on offer is 24,000 to 30,000 pounds. You get benefits such as company pension, private medical insurance, death and service and income protection. There's a bonus scheme based on company and personal performance of up to 10.5%, pretty nice. There's an annual pay review based on performance up to 5%. There's 20 days holidays a year, plus bank holidays, a company credit card so you're never out of pocket, and more. And I can tell you from experience, HTG are a pretty great company to work with, so this is definitely a hot job worth checking out. And now this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. The awesome Guy Leach shared a Microsoft document this week that contains some ways of dealing with the maximum path character limits in Windows file and path names. So that 260 character limit. And he makes special note to not use 8.3 naming is something that SoftGrid and AbV used to do. And I think that Firefox, I don't know if they still do, but Firefox were using the 8.3 name. 
for shortening the path as well. But yeah, don't shorten the path by using the 8.3 naming is what he's saying. And the document he shared provides more tips on how to deal with it. And finally, James Kinden, who I featured last week for his awesome Citrix MCS blog post, posted another topic on Citrix MCS. This time, Citrix MCS and Azure ephemeral disks. He explains that these disks are a perfect candidate for non-persistent VDI or SBC-based workloads, which makes it an awesome candidate for Citrix MCS. So it kind of makes sense because these are tearaway disks for the most part, like you can reboot the machines and not lose data, but if you shut down and deallocate, then it's gone. You lose whatever was on that disk. But because of its nature, these disks are free to use within Azure. And you, you might think like, oh, free means it's probably really poor performance disks. It's not. They're high performance disks. So while they might not be ideal for a lot of different workloads that people might use Azure for, it's actually a pretty good disk to use for other workloads, possibly like VDI. Well, that's it for another episode of the podcast. I hope to catch some of you at the Cloud Paging user group on Friday. And for everyone else, I'll catch you on next week's episode. Thanks so much for listening.